at um, Grace Baptist Church, and uh, I have to tell you that my wife and I have enjoyed the spirit of the services and uh, the people, and uh, I've appreciated the appetite for the word. It's evident, and uh, so we're we're just uh, looking around and paying attention since from Sunday morning to now, and saying things are going right, and I am excited for the future of this church. Now, I because I, I do believe that this is the place in this town, and um, the church is going to continue to grow, and how you're going to deal with that, well, I'm interested to see. Uh, back home, uh, about the time I was departing, they said uh, from the pastorate uh, back in 2010, they said, uh, well, what, what do you think we're going to do about, a, you know, space and auditorium and uh, the Sunday night service is even more full in the auditorium. What, what do you think we're going to do about that? They said, beats me. I'm not the pastor. It's not my problem. <laughs> so that's what I told them then. But uh, those are the kind of problems that you hope every pastor has in an authentic Bible-believing, Bible-thumping, Bible-preaching church. And so I do believe this church is there and uh, going to experience that in the in the not distant future. And so we'll be pulling for you and praying for you and are excited about the future of the church. And uh, I, I love that song. Thank you, uh, Miss Hannah, for that song. That's a great song. I enjoy that. And I enjoyed the kids. Didn't you enjoy it? I was sitting here watching the kids. I told my wife, boys can't walk. Just watch this before church. And sure enough, I didn't find a little boy, you know, six years and under that could walk at all. But they can all run and they can go. And my wife said, should they be running in church? And I said, I'm not a parent or a pastor here. I don't really care what they do. I, I just like watching them. You know, I enjoy that. <laughs> enjoy that a lot. You watch a little girl, she's walking across here real graceful and a boy's coming along looking for somebody to push, you know. <laughs> Great stuff. I used to tell our folks at home, if you don't love children, I hope you miss the rapture. You know, really. I love children and thank God for them. Thank you, preacher, for the opportunity to be back at the church. I want you to open your Bibles tonight to the Gospel of Matthew again and chapter number 12. <clears throat> the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 12. Now, you'll need to find <clears throat> also Mark and chapter 3, if you would, that would be helpful. And uh, while you're holding those places, I want to read you yet another passage. You don't need to turn there. But it's a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 42. You don't need to turn there. If you want to write it in the margin of your Bible, you can look at it later. And you'll remember where uh, we understand that this is a prophecy of the Messiah uh, because it's of how it's used in the Gospels relating to Jesus when he says that when he is come, this, uh, when my servant is come, the one in whom I delighteth and I put my spirit in, he shall not cry nor lift up his voice, uh, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. And uh, then it also says of him, this is a prophecy uh, upon Jesus, and it says, he shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth. And I, I want to call attention to that a little bit later on, where it says he shall not, number one, fail, and number two, be discouraged. So just kind of keep that in your mind, and I'll reference that a little bit later, and we won't have to turn back to it. All right, now, uh, I'll tell you what let's do. Before we stand and read our text, look in Mark chapter 3. This isn't where I'm going to be preaching from, but let's, let's do this. Look at Mark 3 and uh, verse number 20. And the scripture says, And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. That is, Jesus and the disciples. The multitude was so great, they didn't have time for lunch. They, they could not even eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. Remember last night we talked about Peter laying hold on Jesus and uh, saying, this shall not be unto thee. All right, now his friends heard of it. They went out to lay hold on him. 
for they said, he is beside himself. Isn't that an interesting passage? Somebody said, who are his friends? Well, the passage continues. If you look over in verse number 31, it says, there came then his brethren. So they had heard of it and they were going to go take hold on him. There came then his brethren and his mother standing without. So if I said tonight, if I can have your attention, if I said tonight, uh, I appreciate Pastor Hahn and we've had some good fellowship uh, this week and discussions. There's a lot of things we're most definitely on the same page about and philosophically in a lot of ways and, and we've had some good fellowship together and I'm thankful for the friendship that I have with Pastor Hahn. It means we have some things in common, we have mutual appreciation and that kind of thing. But in Mark 3, the word friends is more broad than that. And it has to do with kinfolk and relatives. That's what the term requires there. If you study the word, you'll see that's what it requires. And so we read that in Mark 3, and then we turned over and saw that it was mother and the, and, and the brothers of Jesus that came to check on him. Now that has to do with Matthew 12, I just wanted you to have that light shed on it there. And what did they hear? That he was beside himself. That was their understanding. All right, now let's stand and read our text. See, I like to do it that way because the preaching clock doesn't start till you're seated. So we've already got a lot of work done, and the clock hadn't even started yet. Not that anybody pays attention to the clock. <laughs> okay, verse 46. While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without, desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Father, we one more time ask your blessings upon this time in the word. Please use this time for your purposes, for your glory in every life and in the life of this church. And we thank you again for the time of fellowship together around your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. you may be seated. <clears throat> if we took <clears throat> certain passages out of the Gospels where Jesus spoke and spoke concerning family, and we put some of those verses in the hands of an unlearned person, somebody not familiar at all with the Bible or an unbeliever, and we said, read this and see what you think about this. I think some of them would scratch their head and say, who said that? For instance, it's in Luke 14 where Jesus said, if, any, if a man's going to come after me, he said he must hate his father and his mother and his brother and his sister and his wife and his children and his own life also, or he can't be my disciple. Now hand those words to an unbeliever and say, Isn't that, doesn't that bless your heart? And I'm quite sure they would say, bless my heart, nothing. Who would say a thing like that? Jesus, of course. And they would think, I'm not sure I want anything to do with this. Is everybody with me here? See what I'm saying? And, and there, are, there are several times like that. Uh, for instance, we're in Mark, uh, Matthew 13. Just go back to Mark, Matthew chapter 10 and uh, notice something that he says here, verse 34. This just blows away the Christmas season for some people. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. Well, way to go. That'll mess up a lot of singing and a lot of celebrating over Christmas time. But that's what Jesus said. 
And then he said, a man's foes are going to be those of his own household. He's going to set a man at variance against his father, and a father against his son, and mother, and daughter, and daughter-in-law, and on it goes. And, uh, and, and so Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, that's part of the price that's paid. That, that's part of it. And again, I say that there may be believers sitting right here that have trouble with that. What in the world is this talking about? Well, he's talking about what it takes to be his disciple. And now, obviously, you and I understand that Jesus taught us to honor our parents, not to hate them. We understand that. So it has to be in a comparative sense that our devotion to him may look at times as though there's the absence of love to somebody else that expects attention that they may not get or expects time that they do not get or expects um, relationship or, or, or uh, expectations that may not come to pass because of devotion to Jesus Christ. Now, that's what he taught. I was hoping maybe you wouldn't say, look at me like some of you are looking at me. I mean, this is basic Bible stuff right here that Jesus is teaching. And so it doesn't mean, I hate my dad. <laughs> well, that's not what God wants you to do in relation to your father, not at all. But there are maybe times, and I've actually experienced this in my own life and with some of my own family, that there are times that our affection and devotion to Jesus makes it appear that we care less than our loved ones may think we should. See, my mom prayed for a preacher before I was ever born, and then when I uh, surrendered to preach and actually got into ministry, then my mom told me I was praying for a preacher before you were ever born. And then lo and behold, is my mother, who one of the best Christians I've ever met in my life, a wonderful, wonderful lady. But I can remember times that at, um, at family reunion time or something like that, are, are you going to get to be there? Mom, you know I'm not going to be there. They're having that thing on Sunday. You know I'm not going to be there. I'm preaching that day. and I'm, oh, It just seems like you could come uh, because I said, well, they shouldn't have it on Sunday. And they said, well, Sunday's off for them. And I said, well, have it on Monday. That's my day off once in a while. And so stuff like that, you know. And even my mom, who was a wonderful, godly woman, my wife had testified of that and all of that, thought, well, maybe that's just a little too much. See what I'm saying? And so you take people that don't, like my mom, don't even know the Lord. She does, did. She's in heaven now. Oh, boy, does she know him now. But anyway, I'm just saying, you take people that don't understand the things of God of the Bible at all, and they might think your devotion to Jesus is way over the top, if, in fact, we are devoted to him as we are supposed to be. See? So you have this situation going on here in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus says strange words again. I mean, some people are aghast when, uh, when at the marriage of Cana, Mary comes and says, um, they, they have no wine. And Jesus answered and said, woman, what have I to do with thee? And the fact he called her a woman sends some people into orbit because he called her a woman. Well, she was one. That's what she was. And that's better than a lot of people calling women guys. That's one of my pet peeves. I just can't take an opportunity to pass by. Well, I walk in a restaurant with my wife. Hi, guys, what you doing? I look around and say, there was one guy here and there's a lady here. I did not marry a guy. Uh, somebody said, oh, it, it just means. If I stood at Heartland Baptist Bible College one time. This has nothing to do with the message. And just the fact that you're making me do this is taking longer. But anyway, uh, I stood before a student body and I said, I want all the guys to stand up. And all the guys stood up and the gals just sat there. And I said, now I want the ladies to stand up or the girls, the gals stand up. They all stood up. I said, how'd you know that's who I meant? So... The guys stood up, then the gals stood up, and then some preacher gets up and calls them all guys. And I've been known to interrupt and say, don't forget the ladies here. They're important too, you know. Oh, I just mean all the guys. No, my wife is not a guy. My daughters aren't guys. I got 11 granddaughters. They're not guys. I got two great-granddaughters. They're not guys. So anyway, there you go. 
So Jesus said, woman, what have I to do with thee? He called her woman and said, what have I to do with thee? Well, woman is actually a term of endearment in their thinking. So when he's called her, can you imagine the hypersensitivity of our society? That if I said, come here, woman, which I've done that in front of people at church on purpose, I would say, woman, you ready to go? He called you woman. Hello, she is a woman. <laughs> She's my woman. I walk in the house when I come home from a trip. I used to do this. I'd walk in the house and I'd say, woman, she'd be at the other end of the house. She'd say, man, I'd say, oh yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be, just right there. We both got it figured out. Isn't that great? Jesus said, woman, what have I to do with thee? And people hyperventilate about that. Well, he wasn't being disrespectful, not in the least. He never was, obviously. Uh, and, and he was simply using that term, and he said, what have I to do with thee? Which doesn't mean I don't want anything to do with you, but do you understand what you're asking of me right now? Which, for people to think that because her name was Mary and the mother of Jesus that she had everything figured out is really a misnomer. I mean, that's, that's not really the way it was, and our accounts tonight might show that some. So here's what was taking place. In Matthew chapter 12, we are at a time where in Jesus' public ministry, I, I've got it divided up into two thoughts here, two parts. Number one, it was a time of high demand. You read in Mark's account how that the multitude was there to the degree they could not so much as eat bread. And so while they were ministering to, and Jesus was dealing with those that were brought, as well as as he was teaching the multitudes while they were there, uh, the, there were times the demand was so high and the press was so great that he didn't even have time to eat. And that's where it was right there. Just, it was a time of high demand. And we could go back in Matthew chapter 12 and leading up to our text, and you can see that that is the truth. Okay, so it was a time of high demand. The second thing is it was a time of serious opposition. It was high demand, serious opposition because uh, Jesus was doing miracles. People were coming from everywhere. I'm talking about from Galilee and from Judea and from beyond Jordan and all the region round about where there were Jews. People were coming <laughs> and they were bringing the sick and the lame and the miracles just kept going on. And so as a result of this, in that time of the popularity of Jesus, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious people of the day, they, they got to the point where they were concerned about losing their grip. And don't think they weren't very mindful of the influence, the power they had, and how they had bettered themselves in terms of financial prosperity and wealth. The Pharisees did. They did. They didn't like the publicans for doing it because they were corrupt, but many of the Pharisees' leaders were just as corrupt. And so they could see themselves losing their grip. And so what did they do? Well, they went on the attack after Jesus. And some of the things they accused him of, you broke the Sabbath day. He never broke the Sabbath day. He broke their interpretations of the Sabbath day that they were giving the same weight to as the law itself. And so they even said, well, he casts out devils. Well, how do you think he does that? Well, they said, you're doing it in the power of the devil. Jesus said, have you, well, I mean, I'm reading between the lines, but he said, did you ever take time to think what it would be like if the devil is working against himself in casting out devils? That doesn't even make sense. But when you're desperate like they were, it doesn't have to make sense. And they're in high opposition against Jesus Christ. And so they accused him of all these things. So high demand and high opposition. And so now, when we come to our account, Jesus is speaking, the Bible says, and he is teaching. And in the process of teaching, one notices on the outside. So I don't know if it's like the outside of the building they were in or just at the outside or the outside of the crowd that was assembled there because there was a significant number of people there. And, and to the outside of that, a man noticed that there came a woman and her sons. 
Now, Jesus had four brothers. Mary had four sons besides Jesus. And so it's plural. That's all I know. So whether there were two, three, or four, I don't know. It doesn't say. But they were with the mother. And so this guy looked over, and he saw it. No doubt he might have even recognized her because they were coming from everywhere. Maybe he also was from Galilee. And he looked over, or, I'm sorry, from Nazareth. And he looked over, and he saw that that is Mary and and, and her sons, the half-brothers of Jesus and his mother, and she wanted to have a conversation with him, wanted to talk to him. And so in the midst of the teaching, thinking he's doing Jesus a favor, uh, he cries out and says, uh, Master, your mother and your brethren are here, and they desire to speak with you. Now, remember in our account, why are they there? Mark's account said because they came to the conclusion that he was beside himself. Now, what does that mean? It means I'm guaranteeing you what almost all of you think it means. Did you ever see somebody have a meltdown? Uh, my, one of my favorite things used to be to, you know, when I was a kid and I got to watch some baseball, and you see a, 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 a manager come stomping out of the dugout. I'm thinking of a guy that some of the old-timers here remember named Earl Weaver, and he was built about like that pulpit right there. He's about that tall and about that wide. And here came Earl Weaver stomping out of the dugout because he, the ump made a bad call. And Earl Weaver goes up and gets right up in his chest. And usually the umpire is about six foot four and he is about five foot six. And I mean, he is mad and he is throwing a fit. And I'm glad they didn't have him mic'd up because we don't want to know what he was saying. But he was just, <clears throat> I mean, he was just completely beside himself, just berserk, winds up kicking the dirt on the umpire and getting kicked out. You know, and everybody's booing, and unless you're a fan, everybody's cheering or booing one of the two. And what would happen? Well, he had a meltdown. He went beside himself. I won't ask you if you ever saw your wife have a meltdown. I, I'm not going to get personal or anything like that. But did you ever see maybe your kids have a meltdown? Or if you had a meltdown, did you see your boss have a meltdown? What does that mean? Well, they got so... Uh, the situation was so dire in their thinking. It was so dire, it's just like they lost control of themselves. And they had this meltdown. Now, that's what they thought was happening to Jesus. Why would they think that? Well, it was a time of high demand. It was a time of serious opposition. And just because they didn't have the technology... And just because they didn't have the social media like we have doesn't mean they had no social media because I'm telling you, it's always been the case that news can travel very fast. You just kind of use your imagination. People were done, many of these miracles, most of them were done around Capernaum. That's what the Bible says. And so uh, there are many people coming in and out and around there. There's a busy place anyway. And people are coming in and out. And I'm, uh, I can imagine that there are Somebody is watching the work of Jesus and his disciples. And maybe somebody said, I don't know how you can keep that kind of pace. I just don't know. I mean, this is going on day after day. And he is pouring himself out and he's dealing with the sick and the afflicted and the diseased. And in between, he's teaching and preaching. I don't think he can keep that up. Yeah, I don't either. I said, no, nobody can keep that up very long. Next thing you know, he goes and says, yeah, I just talked to a friend of mine. I said, he's concerned that Jesus may have a meltdown, this Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, I mean, he's going all the time. There's serious opposition and high demand. And so uh, a friend of mine I was talking to is concerned about that. Well, by the time he tells somebody, that guy says, talking to a friend of mine, he said, near as they can tell, he's right on the verge of a breakdown. Can you see what's going on here? And by the time he gets back to Nazareth, he's already had one. And so Mary and the brothers hear about it, and they think, oh, we've got to do something about this. And what are they going to do? Well, our text says in the book of Mark, chapter 3, they're going to go and deliver him from that because they, are, they, they have been persuaded that by reason of those circumstances, he has a meltdown or he is beside himself and they're going to take him aside perhaps to say, let's go to Nazareth, let's rest for two weeks here. Uh, you got to change the pace here. You're going to have a, you can't do this. And that's where they were. Now, if they'd have been Bible students, <laughs> they'd have read Isaiah. And Isaiah said that when the Messiah comes, he is not going to faint. Now there, the word faint means he's not going to grow weak. 
and fall out to where he can't take it anymore. And it said, neither is he going to be discouraged. Now, I know what most of us think when we use the word discouraged, but the word discouraged there means he's not going to, you study it yourself, he's not going to go to pieces. He's not going to lose it. He's not going to have a meltdown. What do you think about that? 800 years before Jesus came, Isaiah the prophet was saying, now when he comes, there are many ways you're going to recognize him and identified some of the miracles he's going to do. And he said, by the way, another thing you'll notice is that when he comes, you're not going to see him fainting saying, I can't take this anymore. You're, that's not going to happen. Is everybody with me here? And the other thing that's not going to happen, you're not going to see him reach a point where the pressure is so great, he just comes to pieces and loses it, and somebody better carry him away and deliver him from this. Isaiah the prophet said, that is not going to happen to the Messiah. And so they are misguided in their attention to Jesus right here. And so the man, meaning to do well, says, uh, your, your mother and your brethren are here and wish to talk to you. And our Bible says, verse 48, but. Now that conjunction tips us off to something. It kind of gives us the notion that how he's going to answer may not be what they're expecting. <laughs> Have you ever taken situations to God and you had it all figured out for him? All he's got to do is carry it out. And you pour your heart out to God and you pray to him and he answers, but not like you thought he was going to. Is everybody with me? Okay, some of you aren't praying enough or you're right spot on every single time. One of the two, I'm not sure. But that's the, that, and that's what we have going here. And, and, and so your mother and your brethren want to talk to you. But <laughs> he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? Excuse me. Why are they there? He's had a meltdown. Do you think that answer helped him? Who is my mother? What do you think they said? Oh, he's okay. Good. He's fine. <laughs> no, I mean, come on. These are human beings struggling and dealing with this. I guarantee you they thought, oh, my goodness, we're late. This is worse than we thought. Because he said, who is my mother? Excuse me. They were not connected. I can show you in the Gospel of John that at this particular time, it states in the Gospel of John, neither did his brethren believe in him. And they were not believers at that time. And so when he said, who is my mother, what, what could they think? And, and Mary, what do you think she supposed? And who are my brethren? And don't you know that they're standing there thinking, oh, my goodness, it must have been true. He's had this meltdown. He is beside himself. Who is my mother? Who are my brethren? Well, standing close by, I mean, we have them right here with us tonight, are the disciples right here. We're not leaving until everybody sees the disciples right here. Does everybody see them? So you got the disciples right here. And Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brethren? And then while they're mulling that over and trying to swallow that, he says, behold my mother <laughs> and my brethren. His mother they are not. There's no way. Those scruffy men, there's no way <laughs> there's any motherhood right there. Huh. But that's what he said. And my brethren, near as we know, none of them were from Nazareth. It's pretty evident, sure. None of them were from Nazareth. And yet he says to them, behold my mother and my brethren. Now, if we're going to figure this thing out, Jesus is going to have to help us, isn't he? And he does. So look down in verse number 50. And here's what he said. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father, which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. Now, friends, think about this for just a moment. 
Jesus, first of all, is saying in a big-time fashion or way, he is saying, I am all about my Father's will. Now, if you've followed his life any at all, you know that this became evident when he was a boy about 12 years of age. When Joseph and Mary looked for him for three days and they couldn't find him and found out that he'd been in the temple the whole time and he was teaching those that were supposed to be the teachers and confounding their minds with his wisdom and with his understanding. And when they said, we've looked for you for these three days and, and, and we've been worried about you. And Jesus simply answered, wish you not that I must be about my father's business? And so we understand that Jesus was committed to the Father's work and the Father's will. And all throughout his public ministry, if anything is evident, it is that he came to do the will of the Father. He did not come to meet Mary and Joseph's expectations. He did not come to try to satisfy his own brothers, his half-brothers, we should say, their expectation. He neither came to try to satisfy the expectations of the whole nation of Israel. He came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but it was very difficult for them to see or to acknowledge their lostness. But he still came to do the Father's will. Uh, the influence of public opinion didn't have any sway over him whatsoever. He came to do one thing, and that was to fulfill the Father's will. That's it. Exclamation mark. End of discussion. He came to do the Father's will. So what is he saying here? This is my, this is my mother and my brethren here. Well, far from what people tend to think in natural thinking... Far from Jesus saying, family doesn't matter. Now, you never see him saying that. I said, you never hear him saying that. He doesn't say that. He does not say, family matters. There are those that try to read into this, you know, especially critics of the Bible and the text and everything, and they try to read into it. It's that Jesus uh, downplayed the significance of the family. What silliness are you talking about? He is the reason there is a family. I mean, God created everything that is by his son, Jesus Christ. Without him was not anything made that was made. And so God did everything that he did by his son, Jesus Christ. And so the family did not exist because some human beings got together and said, uh, what shall we call this and how should this work? And, oh, well, okay, every man should have a woman and, and then they have children. We'll call it a family. No, God instituted all of this. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. I'm telling you, it is God himself who by his son, Jesus Christ, brought into existence the family. It's a wonderful gift to humanity. A wonderful gift. Oh, my soul. What a wonderful gift. So he did that. So far be it from him to belittle the significance of the family. He never did that. The whole of the Bible shows how important and significant the family is supposed to be in all of our lives. But he is saying this. While he is not suppressing don't miss this now. While he is not suppressing the significance of the family, he is magnifying the kind of relationship that exists between him and those who with him will be devoted to do the Father's will. That's what he's doing. He's not saying, ah, Family doesn't matter, just follow me. That is not what he is saying. But he is saying that when you commit yourself with me to do the Father's will, that brings you into a relationship with me that is stronger even than blood family. Look here, these disciples, okay, uh, they are the ones the Father gave him. There's 12 of them standing here, those disciples. Had they learned everything they ought to learn? <laughs> no. Uh, were they spiritually where maybe we would hope they would be by this time? Uh, no. Are they going to do things that make us scratch our head and disappoint us? Yes, they are. Okay. So... 
how could they be closer to him than them? Are, are you listening to this? Because Jesus knew them. Jesus knew them. He didn't, ex excuse me, he didn't expect them to bypass the process of growth and learning. And he could see not just where they were, but where they were going to be. He just could, he could see more than what they had become to this point, and he could see what they would become. And except for Judas, he knew that these very imperfect men had a heart to be devoted to him and to the Father's will. And back here you have brothers that have no clue what's going on and are yet in unbelief and you have a mother that is moved very much by her motherhood more than her understanding of eternal things. See, if you tell the Catholics I said that, oh boy, oh boy, are they upset. But that's a fact about Mary. So Jesus is simply saying this. I'm not saying they don't matter. I'm not. I'm just saying that because of where they are, in their understanding or lack thereof, and where they are in their devotion to with me fulfill the Father's will, I am in a closer relationship with them at this point than them. Is everybody with me here? <laughs> That's what he's teaching. That's exactly what he's teaching. I, 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 I think I'll emphasize it one more time. He's not saying, family, nah, nah don't. not that big a deal. Th that's not what he's saying. But he is saying, as significant as family is, let me tell you something even greater. The kind of brotherhood that they have with me because with me they are devoted to the Father's will. Now, let's stop and uh, think about this for just a little bit in relation to our own lives, our own life. How important is the Father's will? It's amazing to me how many, uh, as a pastor that I was for all those years and still trying to, you know, work with people and everything, it's, it's amazing to me um, how many vitally critical decisions are made with very little regard to the will of God. Very little regard to the will of God. I, I have no idea how many couples over the years that I sat with in hoping to save a marriage and deal with issues in the marriage and such as that. I, I have no idea how many, a lot. And where a marriage is on the verge of falling apart, I have yet to meet the couple that said in the positive when I asked the question, uh, were you two seeking the will of God about a mate when you got married? I've never had anybody yet answer in the positive. Yes, oh yes, we were definitely seeking God. I knew he was God's man for my life. I knew she was God's woman for my life. Oh yes, we, don't, we, we sought the Lord seriously about this. Never. I'm not saying I never met anybody that did that. I met plenty of people that have done it. I'm just talking about those whose marriages are on the rocks and some of them didn't make it. I'm not, I never had any of them say we were seeking God's will. So here is the second most important decision that a person can make in their whole life. The first is what will you do with Jesus Christ? The second most important decision in life uh, on the authority of the Bible is who am I going to marry? And there are people that enter into the marriage based solely upon fleshly appeal and fleshly appetite and emotional responses rather than the will of God. It's amazing. And it's amazing to me how many parents have uh, uh, saved and otherwise godly people help their children in career choice or support them in career choices many of which are going to totally eliminate them from the possibility of serving Jesus in the context of a New Testament church. Because that career is not going to allow that. 
I'm not trying to run anybody's life. I'm just going to say, does the will of God matter or not matter? I said, does the will of God matter or does it not matter? And when we enter into these major decisions in our life, I mean, how many people have you and I seen over the years that it's one thing if you're in the army and you get moved. It's another thing. Somebody says, hey, pastor, you know, I got my job. I said, promotion? This is the salary I've been looking for. This is what I went to college for. This is the one I've been aiming for. Uh, By the way, do you know any churches in that area? And I'm thinking, you know, the cart before the horse thing, you know. We kind of have things backward here. How important is New Testament church life? Well, if you can read the Bible, you can see how important it is. Of course it is. It is the agency by which God chose to carry out his work on this earth. I said that it's the agency that God chose. I'm, I'm sorry. There are lots and lots of organizations out here and lots and lots of parachurch stuff out here and lots and lots of large ministries out here that raise millions of dollars, and I'm not saying they do no good. I'm just saying you read the Bible and put it under the microscope, ladies and gentlemen, and you can come to no other conclusion that the agency by which God meant to carry out his work of spreading the gospel to the uttermost parts of this earth is through the local church. And there are people that think it a light thing. Well, maybe there's a church there. If not, we'll we'll go, but we're going to go somewhere. That's the will of God. Just land somewhere so you can say you went to church. Large possibility that many of these places that have church on their door wouldn't qualify uh, under the standards of what constitutes an authentic New Testament church. Not even close. Doctrinally, functionally, in any way. Historically, in any way. It's amazing how many decisions are made with very little interest in the will of God. I try to think in my own life, uh, what, what about my life does God say? Either way, whatever. <laughs> well, no, his will is important in my life. It's absolutely important. And I, I, I'm not alone in this. I mean, I pray about a lot of things that maybe I could get by and not pray about. No, I, I understand common sense, and I understand if the Bible already speaks, do we really have to seek the Lord uh, about that, about raising our children? Pray for the wisdom and the understanding to raise our children, but he already told us how to do that. I said it's right here in his word. And uh, pray for wisdom and guidance and sensitivity to love your mate and to have the right kind of marriage, but it's already right here in the word. If we're praying for something that's not in the Word, boy, that's a waste of time. That's uh, going against the will of God right there. What is it about your life can you think of that it doesn't matter to God either way? And in the issues of life where there is a way that is right in the sight of God and there's a way that's right in the sight of man. I wish there was a verse in the Bible about that somewhere. There is. There is. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And so what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be pursuing the will of God and seeking the will of God. And Jesus gives us motivation to do just that because he said, these men who were with me devoted to my Father's will, I've brought them into my brotherhood so that I have a greater relationship and kinship with them than them at this point. (laughs) Yep. Wow. Ain't that something? Yeah, it is. Let me tell you why it's so important. Because you don't really, and I don't either, you don't really want to navigate this life without a big brother. Now, I, to talk to, about Jesus in glib and flippant terms is out of the picture. 
in my opinion. And when I say we don't want to live our life without big brother Jesus, I'm saying that on the authority of the Word of God. You know the verse. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did know, he also did, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. <gasps> Don't talk about predestination. No, there's something God predestinated about you. When you got saved, he predetermined something upon you and me both. All of us that are saved. And for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. That his son, that he might become the firstborn among many, say it please, brethren. Many more like him. Is Jesus the son of God? Yes. Well, have you been born again? Then you are a child of God. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. <laughs> Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's you and me. And you don't want to live this life and try to navigate life without a big brother. And the scripture says that he was not ashamed to call those who he redeemed. Read Hebrews 2. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. I'm not making this up and trying to get some kind of a fuzzy feeling going about the brotherhood of Jesus. No, he, he, this is what he's talking about. And it behooved him, Jesus, in order to be a faithful high priest, to be made like unto his what? Brethren. And, and I'm just saying to you that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, it would, excuse me, greatly benefit every one of us to make sure that in our life, we are with him devoted to the Father's will. Because when we are, then we have the benefit of his brotherhood. Now, let me tell you why this is a big deal to me. And maybe it would resonate with others. Well, my mom and dad had three kids two years apart. Then they went, my oldest sister, she went to heaven January 2nd of this year, 89 years old. And, and then two years later, my brother Lyle, who will be 88 next week. And then my brother Ben, who just turned 86. So two years apart. Six years, no kids. And then what my story is that they were so disappointed in the first three, they thought they'd try it again. So it was my sister, two years older than me, me, and my little sister, a year and a half to two years younger than me. So they did it again. And I'm the fifth out of six. So my brothers are eight and ten years older than me. And um, what I'm still amazed by it, my wife knows the story well and knows my brother well. And what amazes me so much is my oldest brother, Lyle, a good man, he's a good man. Uh, he's a gentleman, he, he's, he's, he's a good guy, but I wasn't close to him. Ten years older, I don't know, we, we just weren't that close. And my brother Ben, eight years older than me, never ever treated me like a little kid in his way. Eight years older. He never did. He always treated me like a little friend. He, he, he took care of me. And on his 80th, maybe 75th or 80th birthday, I wrote him a card and just thanking him for, for the kind of brother he was when I was a kid growing up. And he, he has been a good brother to me all of my life. And so I, I wrote him a letter and I told him happy birthday. And I told him how much it meant to me to have had him for a brother and the way he treated me. So I just kind of listed the things he did for me. Uh, ben always gave me good counsel, gave me wisdom and understanding I mean, I'm, I'm sent home uh, from school with the idea that my, I'm a junior in high school. My dad's got to take me to the principal's office at 7 in the morning because I, well, I mean, I hate to say this in certain years, but I got kicked out of class again. 
And so the principal, I was the fifth Davison there. He knew our family well, knew my dad well. And he said, it's you again, Sam. Get out of here and go to class and have your dad bring you here at 7 in the morning. And my whole life passed before me right there. And I said, I, I don't think he can do that. I know your dad. Get out of here. You have him bring you here. And I went home and told my brother, what am I going to do? He said, what do you mean, what are you going to do? I said, what am I going to tell dad? He said, you're going to tell him the truth. I said, it's going to be bad. He said, it'll be better if you don't. <laughs> now tell him the truth. That was just one little case. He gave, gave me good advice. He always gave me good advice. And I was always in trouble, and it usually had to do with that kind of stuff. But, but he did. And, and he always had money. Ben always had money. And us boys, we didn't go around to our dad saying, can I have some money, can I have some money? My sisters, they had no conscience about that whatsoever. But us boys, we had to make our own, and you just didn't go asking for money. And so I hit some tough spots, and I would say to Ben, I don't have any money. And Ben always had the money. He always let me have the money or loan it to me and then not let me pay it back. I mean, he was just generous that way. He, he was good to me all, yeah, it was amazing. And he took me places. I mean, he, he took me on two dates with girls to a football game and a basketball game and took me with him. And I was bragging on him about that one time, and he said, well, really, I didn't want to go out with those girls to begin with, and I thought if I took you, they'd, then I'd be off the hook from then on. Well, whatever the case, he took me places all the time. <laughs> yeah, oh, he was just so good to me. And I remember when my grandpa died, my dad had been with his, dad had had a stroke, and so my dad was away from home during the winter months there. He died just before Christmas. In fact, his uh, funeral was December 24th. And uh, so, uh, my, and I was grieved about my dad, my grandpa dying, my dad being away, and I was close to my dad. And my brother came home from the Army just for a visit. It turned out he got to be there for Grandpa's funeral. And I remember sitting on my bed just crying my eyeballs out because I hadn't seen my dad in two weeks or whatever it was. And now Grandpa's died, and I was just brokenhearted sitting on the bed. And my brother came in that Army uniform and sat on my bed, put his arm around me, and just said, Sam, it's going to be okay. We're going over to, to Fairview, 80 miles away tomorrow. And Daddy said that when we get there, he wants to talk to you, and he's going to show you Grandpa's body and everything. It's going to be okay. And Ben just kept saying, hugging me and saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. He walked out of the room, and I sat there thinking, it's going to be okay. Ben said, it's going to be okay. Just, he knew how to comfort me. It was just it was such a blessing. It just, it, just all kinds of stuff like that. So I wrote him a letter and thanked him for that. I'm considering this passage, and if I devote myself to the will of God, I'll never be not. I will never not be a child to my heavenly father. Yeah, you're 78 years old. Well, he's the ancient of days, the eternal one. I'm a child. Amen. I'll never not need the father. I'll always be his child. And the idea of being devoted so much to his will that Jesus takes us into his brotherhood is very appealing to me. And I found out that with Jesus, he always gives us the right counsel. Always. We shouldn't be surprised at this because he said in the prophecy that when he comes, his name shall be called Wonderful. What's the next name, please? Counselor. We should not be surprised. I think sometimes we can do with less prayer requests and more praying. There are some people that say, pray for this, pray for that, and send their prayer request to 80,000 people and don't even know if they've ever learned how to get a hold of God for themselves. You have Jesus is your brother, who is also our great high priest. 
and who makes intercession for us. And I'm just saying, if you go to him for counsel, he wants you to know his purposes and his will. He'll give you guidance. I'm not saying nobody should ever pray for you. And I have a prayer list. So don't read into this what I'm not saying. But learn to, first of all and foremost, take those burdens and those needs to the counselor. He's your brother. His name is Jesus. Inasmuch as you're devoted to the Father's will. Is everybody with me here? Yeah, that's what he's talking about. And I found out he's got the resources. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus, which would have to do with an infinite supply of resources. And I go to my brother, Ben always had the money. Well, I go to Jesus Christ, never been without. I said I can go to Jesus Christ, never been without. He's able to do exceeding abundantly above all I can even ask or think. That's the kind of resources the Son of God has. Is it important that I devote myself to the Father's will? It depends on if you want to have a sense of his brotherhood or not. You have an adversary too. And I talked to this to the young people about this this morning. We have an adversary that's stronger than ourselves. I remember going from grade school to junior high, 7th, 8th, and ninth grade, I think it was, or it may have just been 7th and 8th. So you go from me and the oldest kid in your school, you know, among the oldest kids in school, to the youngest because you move into junior high. And I don't know what it was. I have no idea. But there were three fellows there that made it their business to torment me day after day. <laughs> oh, it was miserable. They were eighth graders, three of them. And I'm just a skinny little kid. My arms look just about like that right there. Not a whole lot different now. But <laughs> and, and so, I mean, they were just making my life miserable. My brother got out of the Army and came home, got him a job in town. I said to my brother, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I told him about these boys. And he said, Sam, you got to fight them. I said, there's three of them. Yeah, they're older than me. They're now in the eighth grade. I was the youngest in our class, born in August, should have waited a whole year. But anyway, I was young in my class. And I said, these guys are bigger. I can't fight all. He said, we taught you to box. And I thought about that a while. They'd draw up a place in the yard, call that the boxing ring, put gloves on me. And basically what they taught me was how to get up off the ground. That's all I remember. And he said, we taught you to box. <laughs> I said, I can't, I, I'm not able to do that. I can't, I can't fight those guys. Even one at a time, I'd get whooped. And I said, nah. He said, well, you got to face them. That's all there is to it. And it was the next day. I get on the bus, and I go to school. I get off the bus, and I hear, hey, Sam. I look back, and it's my brother. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to talk to these boys you're talking about. And I thought, oh, man, this might make it worse. I don't know. He said, I'm coming in. So he and I walked in the door. We weren't five feet in the door. There they stood, waiting there looking, except they changed their countenance when they looked at him, and he's about six foot two, and, you know, been in the military, buffed up pretty good. And so <laughs> they're looking my brother over, and my brother Ben walks up to them, and I'm standing right by him, and my brother said, what's your name? He said, my name is, and he told him his name. He said, is your brother so-and-so? Yeah. He said, I play brother. I play basketball with your brother. And you're, you're his little brother. How about that? Well, we're going to form a town team, and your brother and I are going to play basketball again on this town team. How, how about that? Okay. What's your name? Kid told him. His dad was, a, I think, a butcher at a grocery store. He said, I know your dad. He's, I used to work at that grocery store. Your dad's a great guy. He said, that, that's your dad? Yeah. Well, how about that? My brother said. Talked to this other kid, and he knew him. We're a town of four to 5,000 people. Everybody knows everybody. He worked around town. Our family had been there forever. And so, you know, you know most everybody. And he knew this third kid. He kept me the connection. And finally, after that, my brother looked at them and said, Now, what has Sam done to you? And they just stared at him, and he said, you guys are threatening to beat him up all the time. You're bouncing him off the lockers. You wanted to take him out in the alley and beat him up. So what has he done to you? And they just looked at him and said, nothing. My brother said, he hadn't done anything to you? No. My brother said, 
You want me to go tell your brother how you're acting at school? No. You want me to go on my lunch hour and talk to your dad down at the grocery store and tell him how you're acting at school? No. You want me to go tell your family how you're acting at school? No. My brother said, okay, look at me. They looked at him and he said, leave Sam alone. You understand that? Amen. Yes, sir. My brother walked out the door. That was the end of my troubles. That was the end of my troubles. I felt so good. I felt, again, like Barney Fife walking around. Don't mess with me. You don't want to mess with me. You know. All because of my big brother. You have an adversary that's stronger than you. I said, you have an adversary that's stronger than you. And you dedicate yourself to do the will of God. You have the brotherhood of Jesus, who, by the way, said, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And I have a strong suspicion that he fell from heaven at the boot of the Son of God who kicked him out of heaven. And he already took him on. And finally, after he answered him with the word of God, he said, get thee hence, Satan. And the devil departed for a season. And I'm just telling you, Jesus Christ is already the victor over our adversary, the devil. And it behooves us to devote ourselves to the will of God and therefore enjoy the brotherhood of Jesus Christ who can't give bad counsel, who has the strength to sustain and deal with every issue you're going to have and I'm going to have and more, who has the resources to take care of us in ways we never dream. Devote yourself to the will of God. Well, I've always wanted to be or I've always wanted to do, I beg you, seek the face of God. Amen. Devote yourself to his will. The benefit is overwhelming. Turn to Matthew 19 and stand. Because if I have you stand, I'm very sure I'll quit. So go to Matthew 19. In verse 27, I just want to read you this, and we're done. Then, then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? <laughs> and Jesus said unto them, Verily, I say, truly, I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundred fold and shall inherit everlasting life. I told you about my two brothers. I could stand here without even trying and name a hundred men I'm closer to than my brothers. Oh, I thought you loved your brothers. I do. But they haven't necessarily shared the same devotion to his word, to our God, to the authority of Jesus Christ. Everybody listen to this? I do love them. By the grace of God, I get to spend Thanksgiving with them. Coming up, looking forward to it. I do love them. My wife even loves her brother-in-laws. That tells you they're pretty good guys right there. Sister-in-law loves them. Yeah. But there are a lot of men I'm a lot closer to than that. Because of the Father's will. I've had dads all through my ministry till I got about 60. Even then I had George Brooks, yeah. Mother's 87-year-old grandmother came up to me in West Virginia Young man, she said, boy, that sounded good. Young man, I'm an 87-year-old mother and grandmother. 
And I'm going to pray for you every day till the Lord calls me home. Amen. Told my wife, got another mom right there. That's what my mom did. She prayed for me. Is everybody listening? Oh, no, no. You devote yourself to the will of God. You don't know. Don't you listen to the devil. He's a liar. You're not going to lose. I said, you're not going to lose out. You're going to gain. Yeah. I got sisters. I got three sisters by blood. I've got sisters I'm closer to than any of them I ever was to them. Who are devoted to Jesus Christ. Yeah. Amazing. It's wonderful. You don't lose your family. Jesus enlarges your family. <laughs> Devoted to his will. That's exactly what happens. It's what it says right there. Somebody put it this way. All this and heaven too? Yes, all this and eternal life. Wow. Father, work in hearts tonight. How would I know? I, I couldn't possibly know. But no doubt out of this many people, somebody is facing a critical decision in their life. Somebody is about to make a decision that made wrong could have devastating spiritual consequences. Help them to seek your will and act upon your will. There could be some in this room right now about ready to step in to a relationship, a decision that is so very, very critical. Oh, that they might seek your face and discern your will before acting upon their decision. Lord, please work in every heart, every life. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his compassion and care. I wrote a letter and have said it personally to my brother. Thank you for being the kind of brother that you have been to me. And I want to say to you, O oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, Savior, Redeemer, Lord, friend, yea, brother. Thank you. And I pray that you'd work in hearts and lives here. Maybe there's somebody outside the family that needs to be saved. I pray that your Holy Ghost would persuade their heart of their need to receive Jesus' work at Calvary for their sins and their forgiveness. Bless this invitation for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's stand or we'll have time of invitation. So let's have the music begin. The invitation's open. I'm not going to plead with anybody to do anything or coerce anybody. I'm not going to preach again. God's spoken to the heart, and a right response would be to humble ourselves and answer Him and talk to Him. Then let's get that done tonight. Let's, let's not act like we didn't hear from Him if we know we did. Let's answer Him back. 